Hello, and welcome to this Institute for Government event on civil service reform, reflecting particularly on the recently published independent, independent review of governance and accountability in the civil service. My name is Alex Thomas, I'm a programme director here at the IFG and I lead our work on the civil service and policy making. And I am delighted to welcome uh, Lord Maud, Francis Maud, the author of that review to the IFG. Francis was Minister for the Cabinet Office from 2010 to 2015. He's held many other senior positions in government and the Conservative Party, too many to list looking at your CV, Francis. And he has been working on and thinking about government reform for even longer than the IFG has been doing so. And it's common to note that the history of government reform is cluttered with plans, reports, strategies, even a declaration the other year. And Lord Maud's report draws together many of these now familiar threads. We've just published our, um, our analysis of his review um, to coincide with this event. It's on our website now, so take a look at that as well as the, um, as well as the report. And without giving too many uh, spoilers, we think it's a serious and comprehensive piece of work. Francis's problem diagnosis, we pretty much entirely uh, agree with, and there are lots of good ideas for change. There are some that we think may not be quite right, um, but we'll explore those over the course of the next uh, hour as well. Uh, and, and perhaps, and we might come back to this too, the most important question for us and for Lord Maud is whether anything actually changes as a result of the work and what we can do to help shove things along. Civil service effectiveness, governance, accountability has been a core theme of Institute's work for 15 years, and so we are really looking forward to this discussion. Francis is going to talk about his report for a few minutes, and then um, I suspect uh, uh, another spoiler, he's going to answer yes to our main question, is the Maud Review the right plan for civil service reform? Um, and then I'll ask a few questions to explore some of the themes in the review, and then we'll open up to the audience in the room and to those watching uh, online. Please use the Slido function on the screen if you are online, get your questions in and uprate them uh, if they're ones you particularly want to see um, answered. And when you ask a question, if you can, please say who you are and what organisation you're from. We are live tweeting from at IFG events and the hashtag is hashtag IFG Maud. So please follow and tweet or X or whatever it is along. So over to you, Francis. Great, thank you. Thank you very much, um, Alex. And I'm just going to say a few words because I'm sure everyone's read the report. Um, when one of my colleagues um, read the draft, uh, she said, oh, my God, you've written War and Peace. And I said, no, it's much more amusing than War and Peace. <laughs> Um, but it is quite long, and it's much longer than I expected it to be. I expected it to be pretty brisk, um, because I thought I knew uh, what most of the answers would be. And here's first, um, first spoiler, Alex. The uh, answer to your question, um, is it the right plan for civil service reform, is no, because it isn't a plan for civil service reform. It's a plan for some changes that would make civil service reform possible. Um, and, uh, and I very deliberately don't get into substantive recommendations for what the civil service should be like. This is about governance and accountability, uh, not about what, should, how, what, the, what it should be like. Uh, what I do in it to illustrate the problems of, of making change happen and be sustained is I have an annex on um, some of the history of the recounting the critiques um, that have been made over the decades, um, which uh, are uncontroversial, but never really, despite the best efforts of many people, never really get resolved or sustained. Uh, and I have a particular annex about 
the, one of the big issues identified in the Fulton Committee a mere 55 years ago and repeatedly since, which is the lack of um, openness to interchange, easy uh, and wel a welcoming environment for interchange for people coming in and a welcome for people who are different and have a different mindset and different attitude and different experience. Um, because I did that really to illustrate how hard it is. <clears throat> you know, this is a really hard problem to solve. Lots of people have genuinely tried, and generally, um, to the extent that there have been changes, they haven't been sustained, uh, which is one of the reasons I concluded that the governance arrangements and the accountability arrangements are so deeply flawed and need to be changed. I'm not going to go through everything that uh, I recommend. Uh, it falls broadly into f seven uh, substantive uh, chapters. Um, some of them are around stuff that is you know, second or third order. Um, um, and, and I think most of that will be uncontroversial about arm's length bodies, um, reflecting some, um, some very widely held concerns. Um, uh, around uh, better support and training for um, and, and reviewing of ministers and special advisors. I think that may, might have been outside my terms of reference, Alex, but uh, hey, um, it's a guide really, not a uh, prescription. Um, and um, <clears throat> some thoughts on um, uh, collect, uh, collective decision-taking and cross-departmental uh, uh, activity um, uh, and uh, and I, dot, I ducked the thing about cross-departmental programs because um, um, there are answers, but it would have required me to address something that was very specifically excluded from my terms of reference, which was the arrangements for the scrutiny and accountability for public expenditure. And now, you might think that it was strange that uh, when the terms of reference were being negotiated around Whitehall, that there should be a specific exclusion uh, for the activities, for the accountability, for the spending of public money, which is a reasonably significant part of what government does. But no, there's only one organization that is deemed fit to uh, uh, examine its own uh, uh, capabilities and performance there, and that is, of course, the Treasury uh, itself. So the two things uh, I really ended up majoring on um, were, one was, um, I, I asked myself the question, because reading back into the history, Fulton Committee, all of these things, uh, and then it was really the combination of Fulton Committee and then reading Kate Bingham's um, lecture uh, about her experience and her findings following her incredibly successful time as chair of the Vaccine Task Force. And you read first Fulton and then Kate Bingham and so many of the same things, often the same language, um, the same things coming up again and again and again. And what were the things that most uh, come up? It's the generalists, the generalists rule the roost, um, the, the lack of parity of esteem, the, the white collar policy civil servants who are kind of above the salt and then the the oily rags who do implementation, IT and digital and finance and uh, procurement 
um, who are kind of lower status. And I did an interesting piece of work, actually, and many thanks to the Secretariat who dug away to get this data out. The proportion of people in the so-called policy profession who are senior civil servants is at least double the proportion in any of the implementation functions, which is as, as raw an indication of the lack of parity of esteem uh, as, as there could be. So um, why is it that these problems churn the constant movement of people, which of course reinforces the generalist thing, because if people don't have time to develop that deep subject matter knowledge and, and expertise, then the rule of generalists uh, continues. Um, uh, the, say, the lack of, um, uh, of good interchange, uh, all of these things which come up again and again, why is it that it's so hard to make them happen when nobody argues that they're real failings which, and the civil service would be better if they were resolved? No one contests that. No one says, no, it's really good to be closed, have a closed culture. No one says it's really good to have people moving around randomly in an unplanned way so the chances of them knowing anything um, are, are minimized. Um, and, and serious people have tried. So why is it that it doesn't happen? And the first answer is there's no one in charge. Um, you know, there is a head of the civil service, um, but uh, he, and it's always been a he so far, uh, is, uh, has not been given power. Um, the statutory power to manage the civil service is vested by law in the prime minister as minister for the civil service. And, and you would think that maybe there would have been, could have been a, a thing about man delegating some of that power to the head of the civil service, but it's never happened. It's always assumed that it has happened, uh, but it turns out not to be the case. That was a lazy assumption that, that I made. But then you look at what delegations have actually been made, um, and there are some around appointments um, which are kind of buried deep in different places in this dense document called the Civil Service Management Code. But the only formal delegations that have been made of the Prime Minister's power to manage the Civil Service have been made to ministers. I absolutely guarantee that no minister knows this, um, because the... <coughs> Delegation letters, the last ones I've actually seen, are from 2004, uh, and they were sent from a deputy director in the cabinet, so the most junior layer in the senior civil service, to deputy directors in HR departments in line ministries. Um, it said that there was another iteration sent in November 2010 when the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act was commenced but I was Minister for the Cabinet Office and I sure as hell didn't see it. Um, and uh, again, I'm certain that no minister saw it and I'm not even certain that it was sent, to be honest, because um, all I, anyone was able to show me was not actual letters, which I'd seen for the previous iteration, but a Word document template. Um, um, and I was assured that it, I'm sure it would have been sent, but it's not strange that the filing system couldn't throw that up. So no delegation um, to a, a, a head of the civil service. Um, and in any event, it's always a split role. Even when we appointed um, Bob Kerslake, the late and very much from my point of view lamented Bob Kerslake as head of the civil service, 
uh, he was told that you will not have authority unless you continue to be permanent secretary in CLG. Uh, so it, that even then it was a part-time role. Uh, and, uh, and when it's combined with um, being cabinet secretary, as it normally has been, um, then you know, what do you want as a cabinet secretary? You want a brilliant policy person who's going to be brilliant at kind of corralling ideas and coordinating the development and the implementation of policy across Whitehall. This is a different person from the person equipped with skills and experience to drive an incredibly challenging change management program across this extraordinarily complex uh, set organization or set of organization because it's never known really whether it's a single civil service, it is when it suits it, or departmental, which it is also when it uh, suits it. These are different skill sets and you couldn't possibly drive change like this on a part-time basis. So that was the second thing. And then the third thing is, well, who's going to hold this person? If you did have such a person, properly empowered and equipped with experience and, and, and skills to do it, who's going to hold them to account? And of course, the textbook answer is ministers. Well, no one is better qualified than I to say that's not going to work. Because I tried. I cared about it. I had seniority. Uh, and I was there for five years. Um, and uh, as soon as I left, it started to regress. Um, and there was no one holding it to account. And, uh, and all of this can be solved. And, and I set myself the constraint at the outset, I'm not going to recommend anything that requires primary legislation, because that immediately the long grass beckons. Um, and I'm not going to recommend anything that challenges established constitutional norms, because then you get into a massive debate. These are all things that can be solved not quite by the stroke of a pen, but by not much more than the stroke of a pen and attracting the right people in uh, to, uh, to do the work. So not don't for uh, accountability um, for the, the delivery, not over just of civil agreed civil service reform, but, but also uh, the continuous improvement that great organizations always need. Um, don't create a separate body for that accountability. You've got the Civil Service Commission, but the Civil Service Commission at the moment, brilliantly led at the moment by Baroness Gisela-Stewart, but, but the organization is captive. Its budget is set by the Cabinet Office. Its staff are entirely composed, as far as I'm aware, entirely composed of uh, career civil servants whose next job will come from the Civil Service. Um, and it doesn't have that independence, that genuine independence that a something that is a regulator uh, ought to have. And when my report was being fact-checked by the uh, Cabinet Office, I got told, well, it, you keep describing it as a regulator, but it isn't one. Yes, my point is that it isn't one, but it should be. It should be the one place where, or can be, the one place which provides organized, systematic, external scrutiny of the civil service so that you don't always have this thing when recommendations are made, reports, reviews, and the civil service then marks its own homework. And amazingly, it says, yes, this has gone very well. We've done all this. And then you look back and you find, oh, well, maybe it didn't happen quite the way that you've suggested. External, organized, systematic, objective external scrutiny is essential. And it needs to be done in a way that outlives the electoral cycle. Because the organizations like this need to 
uh, need to operate um, beyond those, those it needs. That should be the advantage of having a permanent civil service is that it shouldn't, its capability shouldn't be dependent on the electoral cycle. That's the point about it. Uh, and um, so uh, a dedicated, empowered head of the civil service accountable to a, a strengthened and genuinely independent civil service commission, that's the first thing. Second thing is the center of government. And I was invited in my terms of reference to look at international comparisons. And obviously, for these purposes, you look at the, the countries that have similar systems to ours, a Westminster-style parliamentary democracy and a permanent politically impartial civil service. And so you look naturally at Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland. These are the natural comparators. And they've set up their center of government uh, in very different ways from how we've done it. They have a proper office of prime minister and cabinet. So all the sort of coordination functions, policy coordination functions that exist in the cabinet secretariat. So that's all in with the office of prime minister and cabinet. And none of them have a single, uh, uh, a, a, a single finance ministry. They all have a separate budget ministry which controls public expenditure. And in my model, that would be put together with the central functions, the cross-cutting functions, um, uh, commercial and procurement, IT and digital, uh, property, uh, project management, all in one place with the control and the allocation of public uh, expenditure. And people sometimes say, well, Francis, when you were in the cabinet office in the coalition government, you got lots of stuff done uh, despite it being a single finance ministry. And it's only quite recently occurred to me that one of the things that made it possible was, strangely, that it was a coalition government. Uh, and so the chief secretary to the Treasury at the time was not really the subordinate of the chancellor in the way that the chief secretary normally is. Danny Alexander, who I got on very closely and well with, had his own independent or autonomous st stature and status. Um, and so he was able to, and frequently did, overrule Treasury officials who tried to stop us getting things done. Uh, and what would normally happen, and I know, I have been a Treasury minister, admittedly, a long time ago. What happens when you try, as a junior minister, you try to do something they don't like, they go around the back to the chancellor, who's got far too many other things going on, uh, and make sure it doesn't happen. And in the coalition government, that could not happen. And that actually, um, it, it only, again, only recently occurred to me, Danny Alexander was able to operate almost as if he was in charge of a separate budget ministry. And for me, this is the key that unlocks the door to change. Um, and it is essential, because if you look at all of these other countries, uh, so particularly Australia, Canada, Ireland, they've all separated out the uh, budget from the main uh, finance ministry, and they've all been better at controlling public expenditure. I mean, I am one of nature's treasury ministers. I'm fanatical about controlling spending. You know, the work we did in the cabinet office and the coalition government, we, we saved uh, 52 billion pounds um, cumulatively from the running costs of, of government. So I care about this. And the tre and, but we did it despite the Treasury, not with the Treasury's assistance. Um, at the best, the Treasury was indifferent, at worst, actively hostile to what we're doing. 
Set up a proper office of budget and management, as I've recommended, and you've got at least a chance of this working. The final thing that uh, convinced me of this was when the uh, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, actually, when he was responsible for government efficiency, he said, we'll cut the size of the civil service back down to where it was when I left. Um, and, um, uh, and then he said, he got in touch with me and said, well, what, how did you do this? What were things you did? Will you advise? Yes, happily. And then the chief secretary got in touch with me as well and had another conversation with the chief secretary about exactly the same issue with completely different people in the room. And in reality, how are you going ever to run a, manage a civil service, a people organ, a huge people organization, when you've got pay being decided in one place and shape, size, competition, and capability in another place? How are you going to get those trade-offs done in a way that can possibly work? And the answer is you won't. You know, nobody took a decision, as far as I'm aware, that the size of the civil service between 2015 and um, 20, whatever it was, 2021, should rise by another, you know, by 25%. No one took that decision, it just happened. Why? No one was in charge. No one was responsible for it. Uh, and so, for me, the two things that are uh, central to enabling civil service reform to happen can both be done uh, on day one of a new parliament, either a re-elected government or a new government, uh, and it can be done um, quickly and effectively, and that is dedicated uh, head of the civil service, reconstructed and empowered uh, civil service commission, and a reorganization of the center of government. So that's all from me. I've gone on much longer than I meant to. But last thing just to say is a huge thank you to the secretariat who supported me in the course of this. It's never a comfortable thing if you're a career civil servant to be asked to support an activity of this nature, uh, but they were absolutely brilliant. And huge thanks to lots of people, some of them in this room, who's, who gave freely of their time in interviews and uh, evidence to me, which enabled me and gave me lots of ideas as well. So thank you to all of you who um, are part owners anyway of this. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. And those, those civil servants in that secretariat, their careers will go on to flourish. Um, I hope. Uh, 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 they deserve it. There'll be no, um, uh, uh, no consequences there. Um, so I'll do, as I said, I'll do a, a, a few minutes of questions and then we'll, then we'll open it up. I mean, as, as you got from Francis's uh, remarks there, there's a, a huge amount in it. So we'll canter through a few of the themes uh, and then uh, and, and, and do that fairly sort of fairly lightly. Um, you might ex expect me to start with a question on the subject you started with, which is what you and, and we call stewardship um, yeah. of the civil service uh, and of government, um, but also the need for there to be more external accountability and you know, pressure on the civil service to maintain and improve its, its capability. We've argued, as you acknowledge in the report, for a, a statute to set that out, to create a board that applies that pressure. As you said, you're, um, uh, uh, you're, you're suggesting beefing up the civil service commission. Um, do you not think a, a statute for all its um, uh, difficulties of getting legislation through would be a stronger and more sustainable basis for reform? You've talked about it setting up a, a potential conflict yeah. between ministers and the civil service, so it'd be good to hear a bit more about that, but also whether that could be resolved 
by one of the things we recommend, which is a kind of ministerial direction release valve. So in the end, the minister gets their way, um, but the civil servant has certain responsibilities. So kind of thoughts on yeah, but that, that's, that debate. Yeah, but that's what I'm recommending anyway, mm. is, is um, you know, what do you have to do? I mean, the anal- as you say, Alex, the analysis that the, the uh, IFG have made is very much the same as mine, that, that no one is responsible for the stewardship, or what I yeah. call the stewardship obligation. Um, and uh, and um, and I thought about, and I looked very carefully at the, at the IFG work on creating a statutory uh, board and all of that. And I just think, um, I think for two reasons. One is, you know, goodbye to doing anything because no government's going to find time for to do this and it get bogged down and endless debate. And what's the point? Um, and the second thing is, it, it does set up conflict. Um, and you know there will be conflict, um, uh, and um, and the conflict will really be in, in my model, um, where you've got in, in my model the civil service commission would have a role to, as it were, broker an agreed bipartisan portfolio of reforms and improvements. Um, and I've suggested that the commission could usefully have two former ministers on it as members. Um, one from each major party, um, because the, actually the ministerial perspective on the civil service might be th- something to think about. Uh, second thing is, uh, it gives you the possibility to uh, create this uh, bipartisan, cross, you know, agreed consensus view on on the portfolio of reforms, um, and, um, and and if you've got that, um, then um, and then. The commission is going to hold the dedicated head of the civil service to account for delivering uh, on on those reforms, and will be reporting annually to Parliament. So, what you're instead of the legal, instead of the law becoming involved in all of this, which is rarely, I speak as an ex-lawyer, uh, rarely a, a, a useful approach, in my experience, um, you've got transparency, uh, and transparency is is, I think, more, more immediately effective. So what you would have is, if there is a conflict between what the prime minister or ministers want, if they're kind of telling head of civil service or uh, permanent secretaries, no, don't, do the, don't be distracted into all of this civil service reform stuff because we want you to focus on this, then the will of ministers has to prevail. That's the way our system works. But what's the remedy? It's called out. So the Civil Service Commission says to the head of the Civil Service, why hasn't this happened? We were told not to do it because it was a distraction. That then gets reported to Parliament and it's called out. Ministers are still uh, um, uh, have primacy, Mm -hmm. um, but it gets called out in a way that it doesn't get called out at the moment. uh, I just think that going down the um, the, the statutory role just uh, massively complicates things. It challenges, it creates a, a, a big sort of constitutional upheaval, much more controversial. What I'm suggesting is practical, quick, can be done. Why not just JFDI? <laughs> it's a debate we will continue to have, Francis, yeah. and, and enjoy having. But the, uh, I mean. One quick question on that. One of the one of the benefits we would see as a statute, or you know, a more um, uh, sort of assertive means of management, as we're both arguing, is around contingency planning and um, the resilience of the state. 
uh, I mean, looking at COVID inquiry, the, the, the debate that's going on, on on that, one of the main benefits we think there would be of a clearest set of statutory responsibilities would be around contingency planning. Um, does that play out in your you know, in your ideal universe as well, or is this more about the sort of well, general capability of the civil service? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of not, not something that was really within my um, realm, my terms of reference. Um, but I mean, you could, you could certainly define that as part mm. of the stewardship obligation. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of agnostic okay. on that. Thank you. Um, the centre, the Cabinet Office yeah. and the Treasury, you touched on it. Um, and we here, again, we're, we've got a commission on the centre of government that will report early next year, quite attracted to your new office of the Prime Minister and Cabinet and the, the layout that you, you set out. And I suspect we may get some questions on it later. But particularly on the Treasury, I, I get the point about the alignment between budgets and operations, workforce and, 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 and um, capability that you set out. I guess the two, the two arguments that that I've heard against. One is that in your model, it wouldn't, like in some other countries, Australia, Canada, France, mean that budgets were overseen by a separate minister of finance. It would be by this office of uh, budget and management, which is aligned with the prime minister. Would that, no, would no, that no. lead to sort of pressure to you know, spend more and, and go counter to your no, no, it would be, point. In, in, in my, you would have a minister responsible. So it would be a combination of the minister for the cabinet office and the uh, chief secretary. You'd have a budget minister um, sitting over it. Um, you could, you know, and people say, well, why would any chancellor or potential chancellor agree to this? Well, partly there's plenty to do um, as chancellor without overseeing day by day public spending. Um, and the Chancellor could, um, and, and I would think would want to and probably should, chair the Public Expenditure Committee that oversees the uh, spending review. So oversee the, kind of, so have political input into the um, allocation in the spending review. Um, but um, um, in, in these other places, I mean, you know, you've got, you've, you, you, just like now, you've got a kind of three organization center of government You've still got that. Mm. Uh, you just got um, uh, it, it more, it much better aligned. And you know, why is it that Australia has, uh, which I think split the uh, finance minister, I don't know, 20 years, 25 years ago, hasn't ever contemplated going back? Why is it Ireland, who did it after the global financial crash, haven't they? They haven't contemplated going back. Well, because it's actually a better way of running things, and you've got a better chance of controlling spending. You've got a better chance of of, um, of it not leading, as it so often does, the current arrangements to conflict between the Chancellor and the, and the Prime Minister. Um, you know, Chancellors like uh, wielding the power that they, the Chancellor always will be the second most powerful minister in the government. That's just a given. Um, and they like um, the ones that are very political. They like the power that comes with allocating money. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, you don't have to go all that far back in recent history to find examples of, of, of this. And I think you've got a much better balanced centre of government with these three. Prime, Office of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Office of Budget and Management, Treasury, you know, much more balanced um, and much more likely to have an allocation of funds that reflects um, the strategic aims of the government, because you have, for the first time, got a proper strategic centre of government. Which links, links to another um, 
uh, critique that, that um, we've uh, heard and sort of reflected in our paper, which is the extent to which your model would replicate the divide between that already exists between number 10 and the Treasury, and that you would still need a mechanism for policy and, and budget alignment and for fiscal policy and expenditure. I mean, you acknowledge clearly that all these bodies yeah. would need to work very closely together. How, how do you imagine that? You talked about Cabinet Committee, but that, that close working actually to manifest itself so you don't just um, uh, reinforce a kind of fragmentation, but in different places. Well, I mean, I haven't worked out the exact mechanisms for all of this. It's not, and they would they would change, mm. um, and they're not going to be kind of locked down in law or anything like that. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but uh, and and those the way those relationships operate is always, um, always to some extent according to the generally to to the wishes of the prime minister of the time. But building in um, uh, building in the, the means of, in most of this, it's not much more than people talking to each other, actually. It's nothing, you know, we can overthink and over-engineer these things. Um, these are people, you know, operating within, you know, a couple of hundred yards of each other um, and, um, um, and finding ways to coordinate successfully will be no more difficult than they are at the moment. On people, talent, recruitment, we strongly agree with lots of your ideas about recruitment. Really pleased to see quite a lot of things that we've uh, uh, recommended reflected in the, in the review, particularly on churn, on external recruitment, you need to get more talent in. You touched on it in your, in your remarks. Um, also agree that ministers should um, shape and influence top appointments as they uh, do at the moment, or the ones that really want to uh, get involved in it do. You go, you go quite a bit further. Um, and uh, regulated by this, the assurance that a beefed up civil service commission would presumably provide. Um, you talk about four-year fixed terms for senior civil servants, the ability to designate certain roles as critical, which might mean a minister could um, remove a civil servant and, and, and oversee a, a recruitment process. Um, I, I, personal view, I, I buy your arguments, that's not politicisation, that's not, yeah. you know, that, politicisation is something much you know, different to that. Yeah. I also buy your argument that it's, um, it wouldn't lead to more churn, you know, goodness knows we've already got in some of these policy jobs, you know, far too rapid churn. The alarm bell that went off in my mind was about the, you know, the cliche of the truth to PowerPoint, but the really, you know, honest, sometimes difficult advice that civil servants give to a minister. If a civil servant is coming to the end of their four-year term uh, and they're, uh, you know, keen to keep in with their minister, doesn't that, um, particularly the four-year term point, discourage that honest exchange of advice with, with ministers who might not always be as open to challenge as, uh, as you were? Well, I mean... Um the, the four-year thing uh, I put in simply because Tony Blair announced it as a decision <laughs> in 2004 and it just never got implemented, m amazingly. Presumably it was agreed, the head of the civil service agreed it before he announced it and, and somehow it never happened. Um, and uh, we did eventually put in place a five-year fixed term for permanent secretaries decades after the other or similar countries had introduced fixed terms for, I mean, extendable fixed terms, mm -hmm. but nonetheless a fixed term for permanent secretaries or, 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 or the equivalent. So it didn't seem to me that was massively controversial. And this thing about kind of people not being willing to um, uh, give, speak truth unto power, which is a slightly annoying phrase. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. And, um, uh, well, should we really be appointing people into posts where they don't 
are going to be influenced by that. I mean, mm. most ministers, I mean, this is complete myth that all ministers want is people who'll tell them what they want to hear. Um, and one of my favorite civil servants um, um, would come in, um, and very senior, um, well known, um, and he would say, Minister, I know you've, you've decided this. Will you let me try and persuade you to do it differently? Uh, and the answer is obviously. You know, why wouldn't a sane minister, if there's a better way of doing it or it's going to have a catastrophic uh, effect, why wouldn't you want to listen to that um, and learn about it now rather than afterwards when it's gone wrong? Uh, and, uh, and, the, and the complaint I hear from mostly from ministers is not about um, um, complaining about people, giving them advice that's too challenging. It's them complaining that civil servants too often second guess what they think the minister wants to hear and don't give them challenging advice. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, th th this is this thing about truth unto power and challenging advice and all of that. Um, it, it is fraught and it can be difficult. Uh, and I've I've got some thoughts on this. In in uh, partly, I think ministers need to be. Uh, given better support and, and preparation for being yep. a minister. And it is, of course, in the ministerial code that you are obliged to listen to advice from your civil You don't have to take it, obviously, but you are obliged to hear it and listen to it. Um, and, um, and there needs to be similar training from, uh, for officials who uh, do give advice to ministers and how to do it in a way that is effective. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, and you know, they're, they're, th these are not skills that are necessarily intrinsic to, to everyone. But proper preparation, if you've got something to say to a minister and you're not sure how the minister is going to take it, well, there are ways of doing it um, that might have a better chance of landing than, than others. And, but that needs, that's part of the skill set that civil servants in that position need to have. Strongly agree on that. Point. And um, uh, a couple of quick final questions from me, and then we'll, we'll open it up. I can see keen, uh, eager, uh, eager questionnaires already. Um, one of the things you, you touch on in the review, but don't go into in that much detail, but I suspect you have um, quite clear views on, is um, secretaries of state and permanent secretaries in line departments and the responsibilities that are currently on uh, a permanent secretary in a, in a department. And you sometimes hear that... Um, the accounting officer responsibility on a permanent secretary makes their accountabilities very clear. But actually, it seems to me they're quite muddy. A permanent secretary, a permanent secretary is responsible to their secretary of state, to parliament as an accounting officer, to the prime minister, because they have a say in appointing them, um, to the head of the civil service. Yep. Um, and one of, the, one of the benefits, I would say, of some of your and our ideas is that it strips out some of that accountability and says, actually, for the capability of the civil service, you can set standards from yep. the center that um, clarify the authority of the head of the civil service and how that might then play out. So it was an opportunity really just to very briefly develop that, that yeah. theme a little bit. Yeah. And, um, um, and you will, you know, in, in my, as we've discussed, in my model um, and indeed yours, you would sometimes have a position where secretaries of state want to over, um, um, overturn the stewardship obligation coming from the head of the civil service. Um, and in that case, that gets called out in either your model or, or, or mine. Um, 
The, um, what, I, what I did do, and it was a thought that occurred to me, it came out of a conversation with a former prime minister who, who was keen that there should be more ability for ministers to bring in a, a kind of change maker um, who might not be uh, available within the um, civil service. And it occurred to me that, you know, it's always assumed that the permanent, the accounting officer has to be the permanent secretary. Not so. Um, and so I sort of speculate about, I have a slightly sort of discursive piece um, about an alternative leadership model um, where you have, for, for uh, officials in a, uh, in a department, where you have, um, and it comes out of the idea that you know, good, good organizations have some kind of balance between a dynamic principle and a cautionary principle. Um, and if either one of those becomes completely kind of dominant, then it's not good news. Um, and the accounting officer, I mean, has to be the cautionary principle because kind of clues in the name. Um, and, um, um, and trying to sort of combine these in the same person is, is uh, not necessarily very easy. Um, we got into a situation now where uh, many departments, and maybe even most, have two permanent secretaries. Um, but in most cases, they're both people who've come from the policy stream, uh, the Mandarin stream. To, I not, don't use that in a kind of uh, pejorative sense at all. Um, um, but, but why wouldn't you um, consider a leadership model where you do have the two people, um, uh, uh, but the permanent secretary, the, the, the official boss, is the dynamic, embodies the dynamic uh, principle, uh, and the accounting officer is the deputy, um, and, uh, and would have you know, responsibility for um, you know, asking for a written direction. And one of the things I've always said, and I said this when I was in the cabinet office, you know, we need not to treat asking for a written direction as a kind of nuclear relationship destroying thing. It's a kind of, it's a natural yes. um, safety valve. Ministers should be confident enough to be able to justify what they do, even if they're being advised that it may not be the best value for money or feasibility issues or whatever. That's a judgment. Ministers are there to make judgments and, and to be willing to, to justify them. Um, but I think that's a, that's a leadership model that could work, could work perfectly well. And you could give that accounting officer, if the accounting officer is, is the deputy, um, a specific role about ensuring that if you went down my path of ministers having more, not untrammeled by any means, ability to make uh, personal appointments, um, uh, you could give that deputy, who's the accounting officer, um, a responsibility to ensure that um, the, uh, the, what is being done with the composition of the civil service in that ministry, in that department, uh, is consistent with it being able to serve an incoming government, uh, and, it is, and it has a sufficient critical mass of people who are, rob who are robust and independent enough to be able to give ministers uh, challenging advice. So, they, you know, this is not for, this is not for now, this, but this is, I think it's worth looking at some different ways of, uh, of, of doing this to, 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 to accept that there are genuine concerns um, which um, uh, the current system doesn't 
uh, cater for well. Last very quick question from me is about um, how your views, you alluded to it earlier, but how your views have changed uh, either since you were a minister in the Cabinet Office or over the course of doing the review. I, um, I was prompted to, to ask it because of um, uh, remembering an almighty row in, I think, 2014 over a permanent secretary job description where you intervened to, uh, um, to say that the job description shouldn't uh, talk about the um, sort of long-term aims of the department for a permanent secretary, which was an interesting quote because it, no, it's, think... it's to, to try and draw out, the reason yeah. I ask it is to draw out yeah. what stewardship means to you yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and how if it's not the sort of long-term aims of the department, what yeah. that, what no, that no, plays that... out, but also how your views yeah. might have changed or yeah. evolved. No, that wasn't a job description. What it was was a, a document that we discovered, um, which was, had been drawn up by some consultants who, you know, um, before, you know, uh, uh, under the previous government, having talked to lots of civil service, the civil service leadership group, um, and it was about, you know, what are the qualities that we look for in a future uh, permanent secretary? And, and uh, one of the things it said was, you know, um, a willingness to, um, I can't remember the exact words now, but basically, what it meant was the willingness to ignore what a minister said if he didn't think it was the interest of the of the of the department, long-term interest of the department. Well, um, again, you know, th there are perfectly proper concerns to be raised about the long-term health and of of the department, but they should be done explicitly. And yeah. and my concern with a lot of this yeah. is that it happens uh, out of sight, um, and. Um, uh, and and I, I have a passage in the introduction um, to the review where I, where I talk about this. And, and, and it took a long time for this to kind of, because I, I tend to cook things quite slowly, and it took a long time for this to kind of form itself in, in, in my mind. Um, and, and then I read a, um, a, 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 some, work, some description in, I think it was Simon McDonald's book, about, I think it's inaccurate actually, but because he describes it as being a, uh, a subcommittee of Wednesday morning colleagues. I think he, he's, what he's talking about is this something called the Senior Leadership Committee. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Where they, where they um, permanent secretaries sit around and, and decide who are the, among the DGs are the right people to be um, permanent secretaries. Well, that's kind of a bit like it being a self-perpetuating oligarchy, um, and um, and it is a and it it happens without scrutiny. That's the point. Yeah. It's no no scrutiny, um, and uh, and that's one of the reasons why I say the civil service this my beefed up uh, properly empowered civil service commission should oversee internal appointments as well above a certain level so as not to be swamped, because otherwise the only people who are really doing that is the civil service itself. And it is, it is the only in, uh, state entity which isn't subject to systematic external scrutiny. And I don't think that's any longer acceptable. Thank you. Questions? Um, in the room uh, first, uh, I will go to the um, uh, woman there in blue and the gentleman at the front there and the gentleman uh, over there. If you could keep them short and questions, not statements. But, uh. <laughs> Can do. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Grace Duffy. I'm from uh, Bridges Outcomes Partnerships, but very recently a civil servant, a veteran of four departments, so speaking to your sort of churn and generalist uh, point. Um, my reflections of some of that... Uh, 
my time in the civil service was that some of the opportunity, the sort of opportunities for increasing effectiveness and productivity of the way that the, the civil service functions is about better cross-government working and more of a pivot to kind of preventative interventions. So I was just wondering, um, you know, whether you'd envisage the, the Office of Budget and Management or any of the other um, sort of reforms that you have proposed of how they could facilitate that cross-departmental working. And if I could tempt you to maybe go slightly beyond your terms of reference, um, you know, if there is any uh, sort of reflections you might have on what could be needed to in incentivise more preventative action or, or getting over those kind of siloed and uh, uh, budgets across departments. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Let's go. We'll come back to the gentleman there, but as it's microphone-wise, let's go to the... Uh, Tim Ellis, uh, retired from industry. <laughs> um, we have the National Audit Office. We have the Public Accounts Committee. We have the Infrastructure Projects Authority. We have SROs, programme directors, procurement processes, and commercial leaders. So with that uh, infrastructure in place, where is... Uh, who have responsibilities, what is it that uh, the new budget uh, 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 department that you refer to, where is it going to make a difference to the failings, or perhaps not necessarily failings, of those that, that infrastructure? Thank you. And then the gentleman at the front there, if you just wait for the microphone for a moment. There we go. Uh, those of us who have uh, admired... Uh, Sir Humphrey, bodied by Nigel Hawthorne over the years, know how difficult your assignment has been, Lord Maud. What role, as any, does your remit give you in implementation, and what has been the reaction from your clients so far? Thank you very much. So, cross-departmental working and uh, prevent, prevent budgets on prevention, how will the Office of Management budget, budget actually make a difference in this profusion of um, uh, uh, yeah. responsibilities, and then implementation and the reaction to the report? So uh, cross-government working is, is hard, um, and it's made particularly hard because the Treasury theology um, talks about silos. That's why it was so hard to, you know, I've got a piece in, uh, in, in my review about the, the cross-cutting functions. And it's this classic thing, people say, oh, well, we totally support the functional model. Uh, functional leadership. We're totally bought into that, except they don't do it. And I quote, actually, what the founder and chair of IFG, Lord Sainsbury, who said about this. He said, he said everyone uses the words, but actually it, 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 it's not operating because the powers of the leader, leaders of the, the mandate of the leaders of the cross-cutting functions has been diluted. Um, and why? Because the Treasury um, hate anything that is cross-cutting, because they think that that contaminates this sort of uh, apostolic line of um, accountability up to um, the National Audit Office and the Public Accounts Committee. Problem on that is it's all in arrears. It's always after the event. Horses bolted long before the NAO get anywhere near it, let alone the Public Accounts Committee. Um, and um, um, uh, and so, that, so you, you talk to the Treasury about putting together a budget for something which is cross-departmental, no chance, no, don't even ask. Um, which is why you then end up with sort of rearranging the departmental deck chairs, um, as has happened quite a lot recently. So how do you do sort of energy security and, and net zero? Well, you create a department for uh, energy security and net zero. But 
there's umpteen other departments who have a crucial role to play in the delivery of net zero. Um, and you can't put it all together. You have to have mechanisms for cross-government, effective cross-government working. It means you've got to be able to cut through the silos in a way the functional model does um, effectively, and we were able to do it, as I say, because we had a, 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 a chief secretary to the Treasury who bought into it and was able to make it, or, or at least limit the obstruction uh, that came from the Treasury. Um, but you put, you create my office of budget and, man uh, and management with the central cross-cutting functions led from that office, together with the allocation of public money, uh, of, of, of budget, and you have at least got a chance of making this happen, making this work more effectively. It's only a chance, but it's better than the no chance, which is the case at, at the moment. Um, and you know, New Zealand, again, much easier New Zealand, it's small, um, compact, um, but they've done some very interesting things in, in, cross, um, uh, in, in, in addressing all of this. Um, so your, your question, what benefit, um, it's exactly what I've described, um, because you know, IPA it was the major projects authority when we set it up. Um, that would all be in the uh, Office of Budget and Management. Um, you know, one of the most depressing things is, is how bad we are at infrastructure in this country. You know, and and it's, uh, there's a very cynical view about it. And Oscar Wilde, I think, said a cynic is someone who knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. I mean, the cynics I'm talking about don't even know the cost of things, let alone the value. Um, and, um, uh, and how, when you're, when you're allocating particularly capital expenditure, um, when all you're relying on, in, in the silo model, what you're relying on in assessing a project is what comes out of the top of the line ministry, out of the silo. Um, and it may not be true, uh, oddly. I mean, it will shock everyone in the room, I know, to discover that. But the advice may not be very good because in the silo model, the uh, technical capability around procurement, IT, uh, financial management, all that is sliced up and dispersed. And, but if you've got a high-end capability in the same place that the budget, in all of those technical areas where, where, where the decisions are made on um, or, or prepared on whether to go ahead with a big project, there is at least a better chance that the thing will be properly costed, the implementation plan well prepared and, and tested, stress tested, all of that, than at the moment when it's, a lot of that work is being done by some very clever economists in, in the Treasury who don't know what things cost or don't know what they could cost if they were well tested and well managed. Reaction, and I um, uh, would just add also the reaction to the report in the Labour Party, given uh, what moment. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, look, I mean, um, uh, they're interested, um, um, and um, uh, so, um, as I've said, the key things that, that will, will really unlock the door to change are day one things. Um, and um, uh, and I'm, um, so I have no role in implementing anything happily these days. Um, and, um, but um, uh, it, 
this, this could be done quite quickly um, so, if, if an incoming government was, was up for it. Thanks, Francis. I'm going to do, uh, try and do two, one round of questions online and then another really quick round. So quick questions, quick answers. Yeah. Uh, online, uh, how do you attract and retain talented people if pay remains so uncompetitive? And uh, how far is pay a driver of the churn that you were talking about? Um, if you could only have one of your reforms realised, what would it be? Uh, and then finally, um, from Dave Penman, given there have been 12 ministers from the Cabinet Office since you left in 2015, um, how would the churn of ministers work with your proposals around their involvement in civil service appointments? Okay, so to deal with that last one, yeah. um, I mean, it's a totally fair point, you know, and it, you know, we are bang to rights. Uh, one of the big advantages of the coalition government was reshuffles are hard to do. So a lot of yeah. us stayed in post in my case, much longer than the leadership of the civil service wanted. Um, <laughs> um, uh, no comment, Francis. <laughs> well, well, you were there. <laughs> constant efforts, you know, of wouldn't this uh, supposedly uh, more senior job be a good place for Francis? Um, and eventually, can we just get rid of him? Um, anyway, I stayed there. Um, and, but I do say, absolutely, um, ministers should, should not be... The appointment of ministers should be taken much more seriously than it is, both in terms of the fit, the preparation, and the time they are left in post, because it's just bonkers. Yeah. And, and ministers have no credibility in complaining about churn among civil servants when the churn among ministers is so great. So, yeah. you know, that so point, pay point. and your one... Pay. One um, uh, well, look, if, you've, if, if the civil service grows in size by... Um, 25% as it has done, then pay is more of an issue than it could be. Um, I don't think the civil service needs to be the size that it is. Um, and um, uh, I would rather have a, uh, a civil service that is leaner. Um, it was interesting when we, just a quick aside, um, when in the coalition government, size reduced by 21%, like for like, uh, pay freeze, changes to pensions to make them less generous, than they were, um, and you would expect morale to plummet, and it didn't. Morale, as tested by the annual people survey, actually marginally increased. Um, so the big, the big motivate, pay matters, and you must not take the mickey um, with pay, but we got people, and I'm in this room, who um, came to work for us in government um, at a fraction of what they could command uh, in the private sector. Um, and what's the key thing? It's, it's the ability to make a change, to make change happen. To, yeah. to, you know, if, you, if you've got the ability, thing, the great thing about being in government, you work on a big canvas and you can make change happen on a historic scale. Um, and that's a rewarding thing. But, but, you're only, but the pay thing becomes more manageable if you have much more interchange. So you've got people who can come in do some time in government, go out, do something else, and have much more kind of to and fro. And then the pay thing becomes less, um, um, le less of an issue. But um, all these studies we had done on pay suggested that uh, most, for most civil servants in most of the country, um, uh, when you add in all of the benefits and pension, et cetera, and, 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 all of the terms, uh, actually, these were we yeah. paid above average. The one diff exception is senior people yeah. in London and the southeast. I'm going to take two questions and then finish on your. If you could have one thing, so I'll go for Chris there and the gentleman at the front there. So. 
Chris Smythe from the Times. In terms of implementation, you talked about the start of a new government, and you said you know Labour appear to be interested. You know, any sense of what they are in, more interested in or less interested in, and how would you sell these reforms to an incoming Starmer government? So, selling to Starmer. Yeah. Question there, and then if you could only have yeah. one thing. Thank you, Duncan Hames, Transparency International. Have uh, non-executive departmental boards lived up to your aspirations of some 12 years ago, or um, are we not to expect much more than testing grounds for prospective laws ministers? Um, so on, on that, um, uh, we, I th when we set the enhanced boards up in 2010, I thought if a third of them work well, that'll be good. Um, if half of them work well, that'll be brilliant. And about half of them did work really well. Um, and, um, but it's kind of some ministers weren't interested, didn't use them, didn't see the advantage. Um, uh, some permanent secretaries saw them as a nuisance, but, but other, plenty of others saw them as, as, as uh, re, re, really additive. So um, uh, I think there's not enough consistency. Um, uh, one of the things uh, some of the non-execs I spoke to said was, I said, what's the, um, uh, what's the quality of the management information you get at the board? And they said, well, it'd be nice to have some. Um, uh, and so um, you know, it's one of the things I recommend is that Martin Reed, who did a brilliant job um, on um, uh, management information, uh, he once said to me, Francis, if you see a body floating down the Thames, it'll be me. Um, uh, and against massive resistance, uh, put together some work on proper systematic management information in a way that would enable benchmarking to happen and, you know, uh, and all, I'm afraid a lot of that's disappeared. And that's key to accountability. That is absolutely fundamental um, to, to accountability. Um, and there's a question on, on... Elevator pitch to Keir Starmer. Yeah, so, so the one thing I would say, actually, is, is Keir Starmer's talked a lot about mission-driven government and, and kind of cross... So, so missions which are not limited to one department. Good luck getting that done with the current setup, um, is, is what I would say to him. Do what I'm suggesting with the centre of government, and you might have a chance of making it happen, um, but it won't without that. And my one thing, I'm going to slightly cheat, and if I say implement my change of, uh, <laughs> my centre of government reforms, actually that brings with it um, the having a single dedicated head of the civil service. You are um, yeah, treating the question with the same reverence you treated your terms of <laughs> reference, um, which is uh, entirely admirable. Um, but yeah, no, a, a, a strong point. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, the event live stream, for those who want to uh, watch again, I'm sure you all will, um, will be available on our um, website and our YouTube uh, channel in the next day or so. Um, thank you so much, uh, Francis, for um, that um, uh, hour uh, and for the report. Thank you to everybody on the live stream, uh, everybody uh, in the room uh, for coming, and to colleagues at the IFG um, for um, uh, all your hard work. Keep an eye out for a few highly relevant um, upcoming Institute events. We've got an event tomorrow on the really important question about uh, how to improve public service productivity, which relates to a lot of this, and then one next Tuesday on making better public finance decisions. Um, so both highly relevant. Thank you very much, and see you then.